Today we're going to be talking about those who challenged uh, the established order uh, in America, uh, reformers, populists, and uh, American radicals. Now, over the uh, past few weeks, as we uh, have observed the battles of the American working class, uh, 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 as well as the battles of the farmers against the industrial capitalist elite and their middle class allies, we've seen that in many instances, the deciding factor in that battle was the use of the government, uh, 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 the president sending troops to uh, uh, put down a strike, uh, the courts uh, emasculating the Sherman Antitrust Act, uh, or emasculating the 14th Amendment, or upholding private property rights, uh, uh, tipping the balance in favor of business. So the state comes in here, uh, the government, the state comes in on the side of business. Well, obviously, two can play this game. And it was not lost on representatives of the labor movement uh, that the government, uh, the state, uh, could also be used as a weapon by them if they could only capture it. It could be used to guarantee the rights of unions. It could be used to curtail the influence of big business and the big banks and financial uh, organizations. And generally, it could be used to redistribute wealth in America, redistribute it downward to the ordinary American. The American who, after all, was the producer, who produced the nation's wealth. Now, as in the age of Andrew Jackson, these ordinary Americans, workers, farmers, viewed themselves as the producing classes. Remember that term from the age of Jackson. Uh, and they viewed the business and financial establishment as the parasite class, people who did no honest work with Honest work here defined as working with your hands. So in many ways, uh, it's, it's like the age of Jackson 60 years earlier. Criticizing people who lived off the toil of others the way slave owners were criticized during the 1830s and 1840s. But to make their dream of a more egalitarian America a reality, uh, laborers and farmers uh, knew that they would have to capture uh, uh, the state away from the business and financial class. And they knew that this would not be easy. In fact, it would take until the 1930s and the New Deal, uh, at the very least, for the state to even become a neutral arbiter uh, uh, between labor and capital. Uh, 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 and this, of course, was long after the labor reformers of the 1880s and 1890s were dead and gone. But it is significant that this struggle to capture the state from the moneyed interests and to turn it towards a labor agenda, a farmer's agenda, uh, that it started during this period of the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, uh, and although this initial phase of the movement of laborers and farmers to, uh, to capture the state ended in defeat in 1896, as we will see today, it set the tone and the precedent for much of what was to come in the 20th century and much of what we still argue over today in terms of government involvement in the nation's economic life. So the 1880s and 1890s featured uh, uh, an attempt by workers and farmers, the self-styled producing classes, to capture control of the state and use it to redistribute 
wealth and power downward. Now, what is interesting about this effort is that some elements of the American middle class try to help them in this attempt. And uh, you may uh, recall that I said earlier in, in the context of talking about the labor wars of the 1870s, 1880s and 1890s, that the middle class generally supported the business elite, uh, the business elite that often employed them, and that the middle class was uh, paranoid about the possibility of a violent working class revolt uh, on the level of the Paris Commune that I also talked about. Well, while this was true about most of America's middle class, it was not true about all of America's middle class. Some middle class professionals and intellectuals uh, uh, and some middle class women uh, drew the opposite conclusion from uh, this, this working class uh, labor unrest. Uh, uh, they believed that to forestall, to prevent a violent class struggle in the United States, to prevent Armageddon, so to, so to speak, the nation's economic system had to be made more equitable. Incomes had to be equalized, or at least made more equal. And the struggle between workers and capitalists had to be eliminated, or at least toned down. Now, while these middle-class reformers were not, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, Marxists, they did believe in the elimination of class rivalries and to a large degree in the elimination of classes themselves. And thus, many of these middle-class reformers anticipated a Marxist result. No classes, that's a Marxist result. Without the Marxist means, a violent class struggle, these were not violent people. Now, one famous example of this middle-class reform impulse was the writer Henry George, whose 1879 book, Progress and Poverty, uh, became a huge bestseller and one of the most influential works of his generation. Now, Henry George was troubled by the idea that in a nation like the United States with such huge productive capacity, there were so many poor people and so much poor distribution of the enormous wealth of the country. Now, after years of studying the problem, Henry George came up with a relatively simple solution, which he published in his book, Progress and Poverty. The problem for Henry George was the private monopoly of large amounts of land by what he called speculators, who kept it out of the hands of farmers, where it could be put to productive use, uh, or at least potential farmers. Uh, 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 George advocated a tax on the amount of difference between the initial purchase price of land and the sale price, or the final market price of the land if the owner died, what we would call capital gains today. The improvements to the land over the years in George's scheme uh, would not be taxed to encourage developing the land. Now, George argued that this scheme would make land cheaper and more available, increasing the number of farmers, and by, in turn, uh, uh, making industrial labor more scarce, because George assumed that people would leave these industrial jobs to become uh, farmers, uh, uh, that wages would thereby rise, because there'd be fewer factory workers. And thus, according to George, poverty would disappear and in typical middle-class reform fashion, would end conflicts between labor and capital, 
end them peacefully. A Marxist result, an end to class strife, without going through the violent dislocations of a Marxist class struggle. Although Henry George sold a lot of books with progress and poverty, his ideas were never really attempted in real life. He ran actually twice for mayor of New York in 1886 and 1897 and lost both times. But George's legacy was his influence on those who read Progress and Poverty, although one wonders how many people actually read this book uh, 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 and how many just cribbed his ideas from reviews and press accounts because the, the, the book itself is a very, very difficult one to read, almost incomprehensible. And despite this incomprehensibility, the influence of this book was tremendous. And George's influence uh, was on people who began to talk about using government taxation power to equalize income in the United States, because that was really George's scheme. That was really his idea. You take a tax and you shape public policy. You shape the outcome by the use of the taxation power. That's what he wanted to do with his tax on land. Now, another influential middle-class reformer uh, with dreams of ending the class struggle peacefully uh, was a Boston novelist named Edward Bellamy. Now, Edward Bellamy wrote a utopian novel called Looking Backwards, which was published in 1887. Uh, uh, and like Progress and Poverty, it became a bestseller. Looking Backwards told the story of the United States from the perspective of, believe it or not, the year 2000. He was, talk, you know, he was writing about uh, the future. And in Looking Backward, in 2000, this was a time when the government owned all the industry, a time when classes had disappeared, a time when all worked for equal pay, and there were no strikes and no poverty. In other words, just like the society we live in now. Once again, Bellamy's goal is a Marxist society, Marxist goals, without the dislocations, the violent dislocations of Marxism, a perfect middle-class solution to the labor problem. Now, looking backward, like pro progress and poverty, uh, influenced people without having its program become uh, reality. Because Edward Bellamy's book had at least some middle-class Americans talking seriously about the government intervening in the economy not owning all the property by any means, which is what Edward Bellamy had advocated in his novel, but at least the government regulating some aspects of private property in the interests of the public. In other words, what many labor spokesmen and farmer spokesmen were themselves demanding at this very time. And finally, middle-class support for the working class also came from some middle-class women in two forms. First, the settlement house movement, and then the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU. Now, the settlement house movement, uh, uh, whose most famous proponent was Jane Addams, who operated the Hull House Settlement House uh, in Chicago uh, for 30 years between the 1890s and the 1930s, uh, the settlement house movement was composed largely of well-off women, middle and upper class uh, uh, women, uh, uh, who went to live among the urban poor to educate them, to organize them, and to provide services uh, for them. 
The typical settlement house was the combination of a school, uh, 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 often giving classes in English uh, for immigrants, uh, a social service agency uh, providing emergency financial assistance and providing food, and also a political organization lobbying the government for pro-labor measures like the eight-hour day and factory safety standards. Although only a relatively small percentage of middle-class women went off to work uh, in these settlement houses, uh, their notoriety and influence went far beyond their actual numbers, and they became another link between uh, the middle class and the working class uh, in the nation during this period. There was also the WCTU, the Women's Christians Temperance Union, uh, which, unlike earlier temperance organizations, uh, we talked about them in the context of the uh, 1830s, uh, uh, unlike the ones in the 1830s, which saw drunkenness, drinking, as a cause of poverty, the newer temperance organization, this WCTU, instead viewed poverty as the cause of drunkenness. Alcohol was now to them, to the WCTU, a symptom of an underlying problem and not the problem itself. And thus, the WCTU, which by the 1890s had 150,000 members, uh, making it the uh, nation's largest women's organization of any kind uh, in the United States, supported labor reforms like the eight-hour day and labor reformers like the Knights of Labor, the organization that I talked about earlier. This was a change from many previous uh, temperance organizations uh, on the subject of class issues. In other words, the WCTU really weighed in on the side of the working class here. And so, while it's true that many members of the middle class supported the forces of industrial capitalism, there were some middle class Americans, men and women, who, in order to forestall the Armageddon of class violence, which was looming over the country, sought to satisfy working class demands for income and power redistribution in America, and thus back the expansion of government power, of state power in the economic sphere to effectuate this redistribution. But the lion's share of the work for a more egalitarian uh, economic and political system in America, of course, was done by the workers and by the farmers themselves through institutions like the Farmers Alliance and the Populist Party, which I'll talk about now. Now, the Farmers Alliance, which organized in both the West and the South, in the South, of course, as you would imagine, it was divided into separate white and black organizations. The Farmers Alliance was founded to combat the overwhelming influence of the railroads, which controlled freight rates, uh, and also the unfairness of the credit system. You know, we've already talked about the crop lien system in the South, and the situation in the West wasn't much better with uh, high bank interest rates and uh, uh, low balling on crop prices uh, from grain merchants in uh, Midwestern cities. Now, the Farmers Alliance by the 1880s had a huge membership of about 4 million people and an ambitious political and economic agenda. The Farmers Alliance wanted, not surprisingly, uh, the government uh, regulation of the railroads. Uh, uh, not just regulation of railroad freight rates, 
uh, as more moderate reformers had called for, but uh, uh, regulation of the entire railroad uh, industry. And sometimes government ownership, not even regulation, but ownership and operation of the railroads, certainly a, uh, a radical idea when no one had heard of Amtrak. And, of course, an example of using the state or the government on behalf of labor, on behalf of the working class, and on behalf of the average citizen in America. The Farmers Alliance also formed cooperatives uh, to pool the crops of many small farmers and then sell in bulk to merchants, thus obtaining a higher price than any individual farmer could have obtained. And the Farmers Alliance favored what was known as the sub-treasury system, whereby the government would operate large grain elevators where a farmer could store his crop for a nominal charge. Uh, the farmer could obtain credit at low interest rates against the security of his stored crop and thus get around the crop lien system that I talked about that paralyzed the, uh, the southern farmers, the small farmers of the south. And the farmer under this sub-treasury system could also store his crop until the market was right, until prices started to rise, uh, and then sell the crop instead of being at the mercy of a middleman uh, uh, and the merchant and the market uh, who controlled him and then who, who told him when to sell. This sub-treasury system would allow the, the actual farmer to say, this is when I want to sell part of my crop. And, of course, this is an attempt to rid himself of the middleman generally, uh, uh, using uh, the government once again as a buffer. Now, the Farmers Alliance allied itself with the uh, labor movement, the urban labor movement, and most notably uh, the Knights of Labor, uh, creating the potential, at least for a brief period of time, for a historic alliance of workers and farmers uh, that really had a chance to uh, change the nature of American politics and economics. And that alliance seemed to be coming to fruition in 1892 when the Farmers Alliance, the Knights of Labor, uh, disciples of Henry George and Edward Bellamy and other middle-class reform movements met in Omaha, Nebraska to found the People's Party, or what was known as the Populist Party. Now, the Populist Party was the result of uh, widespread disgust on the part of workers and farmers, with both the Democratic and Republican parties, both of which were dominated by business interests, and neither of which were particularly receptive to issues of labor reform and economic equity. Now, the Populist Party platform was a strong challenge to those business and financial interests, uh, as well as a call for the government, for the state, to enter the economic arena on the side of the average citizen. Now, what did the Populist Party platform call for? Well, it called for government railroad ownership, not even regulation, ownership, the prohibition of land grants to railroads. Railroads got a lot of free land from the government. The uh, sub-treasury system for farmers that I just talked about. Not surprisingly, the eight-hour day for labor. A graduated federal income tax. Uh, at this time in American history, 1892, there was no federal income tax. Uh, one would be passed in 1894, uh, but struck down as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court the next year. Uh, 
multimillionaires like Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller literally paid almost no taxes at all on the huge amounts of money they, they earned or stole, depending on how you looked at it. The Populist Party platform also called for the direct election of U.S. senators. Now, that's what we have today, of course, but at the time, 1892, they were actually elected by state legislatures, not directly by the people. Uh, uh, and these state legislatures were notoriously susceptible uh, to bribery uh, from big businesses uh, seeking to elect their own safe senatorial candidates that they could control. The Populist Party platform also called for uh, the initiative and the referendum systems, allowing the people directly to uh, uh, circumvent uh, uh, the often corrupt state legislatures. Uh, through the initiative and, and, and referendum, the people could pass laws directly. Uh, uh, there, are, uh, there are still states that have that. California is a good example of that. And the centerpiece of the Populist Party platform was free silver. Free silver meant the coinage of silver at a ratio of 16 to 1 to gold. And this was a plan to uh, move the American economy uh, into a more egalitarian direction. Uh, uh, and I'll talk about this in a little more detail in a minute or two. Now, taken as a whole, the Populist Party platform probably represented the most serious and radical challenge to the established political and economic system uh, in the nation's history. Uh, and the Populist Party itself got off to a good start in 1892. Uh, it elected three governors, uh, uh, five U.S. senators, uh, despite the, uh, the fact that they were elected through the state legislatures, uh, 10 congressmen, and about 15 other state and local officials. A very good start. Its presidential candidate, whose name was James Weaver, actually won six Western states uh, in his campaign against the uh, uh, major parties, uh, Democrat Grover Cleveland, and uh, 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 who won, and uh, Republican uh, Benjamin Harrison, uh, uh, who lost. And while it was obviously not a good thing for the country as a whole, the terrible depression of 1893 to 1897, which started just after President Cleveland's inauguration in 1893, and eventually became the worst up to that time in American history, 20% uh, unemployment, uh, uh, not as high as, uh, as the 25 to 30 at the height or the depths of the Great Depression of the 30s, but still pretty close. Uh, uh, during the 1890s Depression, men uh, uh, had to become tramps, had to become vagabonds going from town to town, going on the road just in search of work. Uh, 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 and not to mention, as you might imagine, uh, uh, between 1893 and 1897, uh, the Great Depression of that, that, uh, that decade, uh, hundreds of strikes, mass protest meetings, a lot of labor unrest during this period. Now, all of this certainly helped the Populist Party's fortune uh, as it prepared for the climactic 1896 presidential election, which it hoped to actually win this time. But before talking about that election, which was to change the uh, political face of the nation uh, for years to come, uh, and in many ways uh, influence politics in the United States up until today, we should talk about the idea that populists were most closely associated with and well-known for, uh, 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 the idea of free silver. Now, to understand the free silver issue and why it was so important to so many Americans, and it really was, uh, we must first understand that 
Virtually from the end of the Civil War in 1865 until 1897, the United States was chronically short of capital, of money, uh, at least in the South and in the West. Uh, uh, this was a period of stable or falling prices and tight money, which we call deflation or deflationary. Eastern banks and Eastern financiers control the nation's money supply, which was based and backed by gold. And they, of course, had the gold. When I made uh, a little joke a while back about the golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rules, well, in the 1890s, the Eastern capitalists and financiers literally had the gold. And they had had the gold since the end of the Civil War. And since the financiers, the Eastern money men and financiers, did the lending in the United States. Uh, 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 they lent mostly to the South. They lent to the West. They lent in gold. They wanted, of course, to be repaid in gold, in what they called sound money. And this is why the Eastern financial interest succeeded in killing what were known as greenbacks, paper money, which was not backed by gold or any other metal for that matter, uh, why they were able to kill these greenbacks and take them out of circulation in the 1870s. Uh, greenbacks had been issued by the federal government during the Civil War in a desperate effort to raise money for the war effort, just print more money, not backed by gold. And these greenbacks uh, had the effect of not only helping the North win the Civil War, but also expanding the amount uh, and the supply of money uh, for debtors. So people in the South and the West liked this greenback idea because they got money. But what was known as the Specie Resumption Act of 1875, that's S-P-E-C-I-E, -E, the Specie Resumption Act of 1875, retired the greenbacks, ended the greenbacks. They made you redeem them you know, for money and stopped circulating them. Uh, and this Specie Resumption Act returned the United States back to a gold-backed currency. Everything had to be paid for or backed by gold. That's, that's the way the currency was supposed to work. Now, after this defeat, advocates of an expanded currency system shifted their strategy, calling for the use of silver along with gold as legal tender at the rate of 16 to 1. 16 units of silver would be equivalent to one unit of gold. And there was plenty of silver in the mines uh, of, the, uh, of, of the West, uh, in contrast to gold, which was very scarce, which was the idea. Now, free silver, this 16 to 1 coinage, would in effect allow more money to come into the American economy. It would expand the amount of dollars in the uh, American economy and thus allow farmers in the West and the South to repay their debts, repay their loans, uh, but repaid them in devalued currency, devalued money, said the Eastern bankers and financiers who insisted on being repaid in gold. And this basically became the issue between the hard money gold bugs from the East and the soft money silverites uh, from the South and West throughout the 1870s, 1880s, and into the 1890s. Creditors, those from the East largely, wanted a constricted money supply. And debtors from the South and the West mostly wanted an expanded money supply through the 16 to 1 coinage of silver. Now, not surprisingly, the White House and most of the major national political offices 
during the 1890s were controlled by the gold bugs in most in both of the major parties, both the Democratic and Republican Party. In fact, the biggest gold bug of all was the President of the United States, Democrat Grover Cleveland, uh, who was President from 1885 to 1889 and then from 1893 uh, to 1897. Cleveland obtained the repeal of the Sherman Silver, Silver Purchase Act. Uh, 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 a limited act which had been passed in 1890 as a sop to the Southern and Western civil rights that allowed the purchase, but not the coinage of silver, but the purchase by the government of silver. Even this was too much for Grover Cleveland, who enraged the South and West by getting the Sherman Silver Purchase Act repealed in 1894, in the midst, ironically, of a huge depression involving severe deflation and severely shrunken money supplies, with farmers completely unable to pay their debts and being foreclosed. It's small wonder that during this time, uh, the Populist Party, between 1892 and 1896, uh, that the Populist Party grew rapidly, uh, with many defections from both the Democratic and Republican parties, as well as spawning silver wings of the Republican and the Democratic Party, composed of those who wanted free silver but who didn't join the populists, who stayed in the Republican and Democratic parties. By 1896, as the Depression ground on into its third year, Grover Cleveland and all gold men were increasingly unpopular in the West and the South. Accused of being the handmaidens of the Eastern banks and the creditors, who were using the gold standard to create deflation that would only increase the value of the debts owed them, above and beyond the original fair amount. And, of course, the gold men in response to this responded that all the silverites wanted, all the free silver men, what they wanted was to avoid paying their fair debts and to destroy the nation's financial system through massive inflation, through free silver. Gold men like Grover Cleveland literally believed that the economic future of the United States hinged on this gold-silver issue, and that he and other gold men were the only ones who were behaving responsibly in this supercharged atmosphere, that the masses, the working class, the poor, the farmers, were trying to plunge the nation into first economic anarchy and then political anarchy in a version of the Paris Commune, an apocalyptic vision of class violence that never really went away for the nation's elites and much of its middle class. Now, it would be the presidential election of 1896 that would decide this issue, uh, as well as the other issues on the populist agenda. The election of 1896 was the most momentous and anticipated election since the one that had elected Abraham Lincoln 36 years earlier. And as in 1860, many Americans uh, approached the campaign wondering out loud whether the United States would even survive it. Now, the Republicans nominated William McKinley, who was the governor of Ohio, uh, known for his high tariff of 1890, also known for his support of the gold standard, and his general belief that whatever was good for business was good for the nation. The Democrats went into their 1896 convention uh, without a clear front runner, 
Grover Cleveland, who was the incumbent, uh, who had presided over a three-year-long depression, uh, was too unpopular to be renominated. And they didn't have a candidate until a relatively unknown 36-year-old congressman from Nebraska named William Jennings Bryan electrified the convention with one of the most famous political addresses of all time, what is known as the Cross of Gold speech, in which Bryan compared opponents of free silver to Judases, to Christ killers, to evil money changers who had to be driven from the temple. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. Brian ended uh, his speech in a memorably uh, dramatic fashion. And after the loudest ovation and wildest demonstration that anyone had ever seen in a political convention, Brian was nominated for the presidency by the Democrats. Now, this left open the question of who the populist party nominee would be, and they, too, decided to nominate William Jennings Bryan. They really had no choice, even though they would be essentially sacrificing their identity to the Democrats. Remember that the populist platform, all the other things I talked about, was not the same as the Democratic Party platform, except for Free Silver. Now, the fate of Free Silver and the fate of the populist movement was in the hands of William Jennings Bryan. Now, William McKinley and the Republicans, not surprisingly, had the uh, benefit during the uh, campaign of 1896 of literally of millions of dollars in campaign contributions from business and financial institutions, as you might imagine. They outspent the Democrats in this election almost 20 to 1. I think this is the greatest disparity of spending in any American presidential election. Republicans criticized and pilloried Bryan as a man who would, quote, legislate the thriftless into ease and who promised something for nothing. And, again, not surprisingly, the Republicans warned that a Bryan victory would mean a class war of the farmers and the workers against the middle and upper classes that would leave the country in ruins, a free silver inflationary spiral that would wreck the nation's economy and make the 15% unemployment rate of 1896, it had gone down slightly, but not much, that's still a lot, uh, but uh, a depression that the Republicans charged would make that 15% unemployment rate look puny by comparison as businesses collapsed like dominoes. If Brian wins Tuesday, don't bother coming into work on Wednesday. This is what some Eastern factory owners were reputed to have told their workers as the election approached. And on election day, the Republican strategy won out. McKinley, in an election that was as sectionally divided as the one in 1860, carried the entire East and the entire Midwest and won the presidency by about 500,000 votes out of 13.5 million cast. In other words, close, but not razor close. Bryan won the South and virtually the entire West, but it had not been enough. 1896 marked both the high watermark and the beginning of the end for the populist moment. The populist party, as I mentioned, had sacrificed much of its organization an identity and platform when it endorsed Bryan's Democratic Party candidacy. And stung by its defeat, it began to fall apart as an institution. 
not helped by the racial problems in the South between black and white populists, a missed opportunity for an interracial class-based alliance among poor farmers, if there ever was one, but a missed opportunity. And after 1896, most of the old populists crept back into the Democratic Party. By 1897, the Depression had miraculously ended, and prosperity began to return to the farms and the factories. Not due to anything William McKinley did uh, as president, but to the vagaries of the business cycle. Prices for farmers and wages for workers began to rise again. And even the currency question, the free silver question, that had threatened to tear the country apart began to ease with the discovery of new sources of gold in South Africa, uh, Alaska, and Canada, uh, pouring huge uh, amounts of gold uh, into the American economy and expanding the money supply the way the silverites wanted, only now with gold obviating the need for the coinage of silver. So, things were back to normal. Or were they? Big business had won yet again, it was true. But even so, the political and economic landscape of the nation had been altered forever. Because Bryan and the Democrats had just run the first modern presidential campaign on the basis of the federal government, of the state, actively supporting the interests of the worker, the farmer, the debtor, the consumer, the average American, the people. From that election on, the Democratic Party would be identified with the common man and with the use of government power on behalf of the common man. And Correspondingly, the Republican Party would, uh, especially after the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt ended in 1909, become largely identified with business. Uh, uh, and notwithstanding its rhetoric of laissez-faire and free markets, with the use of government power on behalf of business. Now, it would take a long time for the Democratic Party philosophy of the use of government on behalf of the laborer the farmer, the consumer, the poor, uh, to become the political culture of the entire nation. William Bryan, Jennings Bryan himself did not live to see this. He died in 1925. But by the 1930s, the Democratic parties and Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, with its use of state power, government power, to even the odds in favor of labor and its battle with capital, uh, and its open identification with the struggles of the poor to break into the middle class, well, the Democratic Party had made that change in American political culture possible. And between uh, 1932 and the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, labor, farmers, minorities, and the poor, mostly Democrats, had captured control of the national state from the business and corporate class and used it for its own interests for its own agenda, just as it had seen business do in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. The election of 1896, then, changed America, establishing a political alignment that lasted throughout most of the 20th century, and which still has much relevance today, even though it was a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, who said during his presidency that the era of big government is over. It's never really completely over. And it was the presidential election 
1896, the last in the 19th century, that made the issue of the use of the government and government power and the relationship of that power to the ongoing issues of freedom, of liberty, and equality uh, a permanent part of the American political and economic landscape, one that no American presidential candidate and no American citizen, for that matter, could escape in the 20th century or the 21st.